Welcome to this podcast, produced by Imagine, an online source focusing on early childhood music therapy. Imagine is sponsored by the American Music Therapy Association and can be found on the web at www.imagine.musictherapy.biz. This podcast is entitled Practicing Music Therapy in the NICU, an interview with Kim Hawkins and presented by Matt Logan. Matt Logan is a music therapy practitioner in Iowa City and is currently pursuing a Master's of Arts degree in music therapy at the University of Iowa. He works primarily in hospice and palliative care settings, but is also interested in using lullabies with premature and full-term infants, as evident by his website www.aperfectlullaby.com. In this podcast, Matt interviews Kim Hawkins, an experienced NICU music therapist who provides services in a highly rated neonatal intensive care unit in the United States. This podcast is just going to be a casual conversation, and I hope you take some valuable information from it. So, Kim, please tell us a little bit about how you came to work in neonatal intensive care unit. How did I come to do that? Uh, it's been a long roundabout process. I've been working as a music therapist for over 20 years and had spent the majority of my work uh, working with adults and for many years worked with adults who had acquired brain injuries. So I learned a lot about uh, the cognitive rebuilding of the brain, basically, and the redevelopment of the brain. And as I found myself in a new position, and as a mother of two children myself, I have come to know babies and children quite well, and also working with children with special needs. Uh, the opportunity for music therapy in our own um, neonatal intensive care unit came up and I decided, hmm, you know, it'd be very interesting to learn the other end of the spectrum of watching the brain develop because of the interventions we provide, both medically as well as therapeutically, like through music therapy. So it was an interesting challenge for me to reapply or relearn that from cognitive redevelopment to instead supporting cognitive development from the very beginning. So um, I think what the impetus was finally for me was when I was working uh, with children who are a little bit older, and many of the children have been diagnosed with um, ADHD, client disorder, and some other needs. And as I was talking with these young boys and explaining that I was going to be working in a NICU, several of them raised their hands and they said, I was a preemie. Oh, I was a preemie. Yeah, I was a preemie. <laughs> I realized what we've learned through our, our predecessors, like the work of Dr. Jane Stanley, who said a great reason why we are in the NICU to provide these early interventions is to prevent or to what can we do to support families and the patients um, before the long term mm -hmm. when we see those long term outcomes mm -hmm. that could be such issues like ADHD or ODD and others. So sure. that's, been, that's been an interesting relearning process for me along the continuum. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can you give us uh, an idea of what a modern NICU, that's a neonatal intensive care unit, give us an example of what that looks like and how it caters to the needs of its fragile patients? Sure, sure. You know, um, the modern day NICU is so much different than that traditional NICU that we even still see on TV today. It is no longer the one big room filled with 15 beds and we're all there together. I remember our own NICU used to be that way. What they have really done in many NICU renovations, including our own, which was renovated about um, seven years ago now, 
is to really focus on what are the needs of the infant and the family, making it both family-centered care. What are we doing to make room for the families to be present at their child's bedside? And also, what are we doing to support the overall developmental care needs of the infant? So we look at everything from the environment. What is the lighting like? What are the noise levels like? What are we doing to control the noise that's in there? Uh, we look at the easy access to equipment for the staff so that we can cluster our care so that we don't have to be constantly interrupting the infant, but allowing them instead to have significant periods of sleep and of rest. Um, so that begins to help you decide how you want to design your NICUs. Many NICUs are now, instead of this one large open room with multiple beds, might be what they call a pod area, where there are, say, three or four beds of an infant all in, in a smaller size room together. The care equipment is all right there for the infant, and the nurse's work area is actually outside the room. Um, and that's very typical in many NICUs. Ours went another step beyond that where the rooms are individualized. So many of our rooms in our own NICU are single rooms. The single room, again, has all the equipment necessarily available. We control the environment, the lighting, the noise, everything through, whether it's the ceiling tiles to lower, lessen the, the sound levels and the, the carpeted floors to do that, or lighting that includes backlighting um, rather than direct overhead lighting over the infant. And then um, we have doors that are able to swing open or slide open so that we can get equipment in and out, but we can also close those doors to completely contain that one infant in one room. And then the nurse's work area is outside the room, just right outside the room. Um, many NICUs, of course, we use paging systems, we use um, other electronic and technology means to alert the staff if the patient has a need. But again, we don't have to be um, all right there together at the same time too, perhaps disturbing that infant. Um, the NICU still has a lot of the traditional equipment, whether it be the levels of ventilators that are needed, um, the jet ventilators, the quiet ventilators, all the way to you know the very loud, noisy ECMO machines that may be present. Sure. So you know, there's only certain levels that we, we can contain. Um, and it also has all the necessary um, that are available, whether it be the isolettes that can open up and become a warmer bed or the traditional isolate that we might be able to have where the infant is growing and um, maintaining temperature in there, mm -hmm. the open warmer beds, even the cribs. So still those typical um, bedding that's necessary for the infant mm -hmm. that we have too. What's really neat to see in the NICUs too is more incorporation for the room for the family, whether it be there's a couch or a bed present in the room or even uh, a, a reclining rocking chair so the parent can be able to hold their child. Sure. Or privacy for the mother who's breastfeeding and needs to be able to mm -hmm. pump, that we finally have that instead of that you're all in a big environment together. Right. They're very sensitive to noise and watching what the standards are for noise. Um, the latest standards are in a NICU for noise levels that we keep that noise under 45 decibels on an A-weighted scale. And that's mm. extremely quiet. And what that has done is to enlighten um, staff uh, who are in architects who are designing new NICUs to create things as quiet as possible. It's alerted our manufacturers so that the equipment they make, like the isolettes, are as quiet as possible. And it reminds us, the staff members, where our interactions lie to keep those um, our own noise levels as quiet as possible, mm -hmm. too. Sure. Mm -hmm. What uh, what prompted the changes in in the layouts of NICUs? Um, I think both, again, back to that family-centered care. Um, traditional NICUs before this current setting were often all about the, the staff and the baby 
And there was no room for parents to be in there to if they wanted to be with their child throughout the whole day and night. Mm-hmm. I know our own NICU used to be, um, we had one tiny, tiny little family waiting area. Um, there really wasn't room for families to wait or to be a whole lot next to their infant in the NICU. Mm-hmm. And when the doctors came through for rounds, everybody had to leave. And that rounds might last from two to four hours, so uh-huh. even parents couldn't be present, even if it wasn't their infant in rounds. Uh, now, NICUs have rooms where, again, they have chairs, they have beds, they have um, bathrooms even for, for the parents and who can stay and can be an active member in the rounding together with the staff, can be an active member to support and be there for their child's care 24-7. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a huge improvement in family-centered care, let alone, again, focusing on developmental care because ultimately we want to support that neurobehavioral or the brain development of that infant. Mm-hmm. So what kind of environment are we doing to create that? So it's, it sounds like these, um, these improvements are really good for the families. Mm-hmm. Does uh, more presence of the families have an effect on the infant? Absolutely. Absolutely. If we can make the environment such that makes the parent feel comfortable to be present, um, then the parent may very well be present much more often. But there are always complicating situations. The family lives hours away. The family sure. has other children at home. The, the, both parents need to return to work or whatever that may be. So there's always situations that are going to take the parent away. Um, but what are we doing to create the environment that's going to help the parent be there as much as possible? We know through the research done through developmental care and infant neurobehavioral development that separation alone from the between the mother and the infant causes stress for mm. the infant. Mm. So again, what are we doing to minimize that stress level? We do that through the, the equipment that's available. Is there a couch or a bed for the parent to sleep on? Is there a bathroom they have accessible? If they can't stay in the room, we have a hotel within the hospital and the parent can stay here at a minimal cost. Or many hospitals, like our children's hospital, having a Ronald McDonald house, sure. family be able to stay there at a minimal cost. What mm-hmm. are we doing um, to help encourage the parents? We as clinicians then also encourage parents to be here so that they can be feeding their child, breastfeeding or bottle feeding. Um, what are we doing to have parent here when it's time for baby's bath? What are we doing to provide educational and nurturing, nurturing activities like the music therapist can do sure. for the infant? Um, teaching activities, all those things that we want to support the parents during the time that they're here. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Let's get a little bit more into uh, music therapy and the interventions that, that you do. What are common goals a music therapist might work toward with an infant in a neonatal intensive care unit? And what kind of in- interventions uh, might you use? Overall, the, the biggest goal that I see for music therapy uh, and my role as a music therapist in our NICU is to support that neurobehavioral development of the infant. And uh, that may be the entire sensory system. What are we doing to help um, that infant be able to, uh, what are we doing to support that infant to create this uh, level of homeostasis where they are calm, where we have a self-regulated behavior Um, Mm -hmm. as opposed to the stress-related behaviors. What are we doing to help teach that infant when they're in a stress state to bring them back to homeostasis in a self-regulation state? Um, And we do all of that through our interventions again. And if we're doing those things, we're ultimately bringing that infant to a sleep state. And if that infant's in a sleep state, we're supporting neurobehavioral development. Mm -hmm. I think our next goals as music therapists, there are always going to be the infants who are with us for long term. 
um, whether that be several weeks, several months that we may have. So you start to look at all of what are we doing to support that infant's language development? What are we helping to help that child's social development, their motor support, um, and the emotional attachment or bonding and secure mm -hmm. attachment that must be necessary for these children too. Sure. To take for example, um, you would think, okay, what kind of what kind of social goals are you talking about here? Infants can't be that social. Um, but, you know, social and emotional goals tie highly together. Is that infant being held? Is that infant being sung to? Is that infant being rocked? Is that infant receiving multimodal stimulation? That engages them socially, encourages them to be, again, in self-regulation, that they may open their eyes and make that eye contact with you while mm -hmm. you're interacting with them. They're already starting on social social goals. Sure. Let alone that that child feels comforted, feels secure, feels that you are attending to their needs. We're seeing emotional development there. Mm -hmm. What are we doing? I think it's important for us as music therapists to know what are we doing to support physical and motor development. Is the infant always in the same place in their bed? Um, many infants, because of the equipment we have, are oriented where they are on their right side. Um, and that affects the way that their head shapes as they're developing. And if it we're affecting their head shaping, it affects their brain development again. So what are we doing as music therapists to help encourage this child be in different positions or be supported through different tactile supports? Um, are we working closely with the physical therapist, the occupational therapist, or the, the nurse specialist who, who specialize in those areas providing the physical support that's necessary uh -huh. that we have? So you look at, again, those the social, the cognitive, the, the motor, and emotional goals. And then there's um, the parents. What are we doing to provide um, opportunities um, to develop appropriate, normal parent-infant interactions? That infant who's on a warmer bed and is hooked to a vent and multiple wires, and the parent says, I, I can't hold my child, what can I do? How can I still be a parent? Well, the music therapist, we can still use our voice and we can sing to that child. I can mm -hmm. teach a parent to stroke that child's head, provide boundaries, give them some tactile support to grasp a finger or mm -hmm. offer a pacifier for non-nutritive sucking while they're calmly singing. I learned it best from a parent once. She said, the music helps calm me so that I'm more calm in my interactions with my child. Mm. So that's what brings that parent to the NICU more when they can feel part of the inter, um, you know, the interactions with their sure. child. Sure, when they're part of the uh, part of the growth process and part of well, I guess their treatment, really. Absolutely, yeah. and both, both. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, you mentioned earlier uh, stress behaviors mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. also um, self-regulatory behaviors. Could you mm -hmm. give me maybe three examples of each what a stress behavior mm -hmm. might look like, and then what? Um, a positive behavior would be that we would want to see. Sure, sure. You know, it's important, and this goes back to what developmental care is. Developmental care is recognizing the signs the baby is giving us and their behaviors, and what are we doing to provide a supportive environment to encourage those self-regulatory or those calm behaviors. I use the word mm -hmm. calm when I talk with families. That's a little more understandable sure. for them. And it goes back to a lot of the work that I follow is the work of Dr. Heidelie Sauls, who's done a lot of research and a lot of work together with her colleagues on understanding preterm infant behavior, which is so very different um, than the, the healthy newborn or the child or the adult. Mm -hmm. Although we see a lot, we can see a lot of those same behaviors, but we learn them from the premature infant. So what, um, what was developed was called the synactive theory for organizational development. And that idea is how is the brain working together? How's the brain, first of all, developing? And therefore, what are the behaviors we're seeing as a result? Mm -hmm. um, beginning behaviors, uh, the synactive means that they work together. 
So there are four primary areas of the brain in its development that we're looking at. And the first is the autonomic. It's easy to think about this, the auto automatics, the, the oxygen levels, the heart rate, even the whole gut system, the visceral system, those are all part of the autonomic system. So what are we looking at? Is the child's coloring well? Is their heart rate low? Is their oxygen level high? Or is it the opposite? And if it's if the heart rate's lower, um, under 160 beats a minute, and their heart and their oxygen level is high, depending on what the range is that's required or, or ordered by the physician. So let's say the infant's oxygen saturation is at 90 to 95%. Mm -hmm. There's an infant right there from the autonomic level showing us a sign of being um, self-regulated. Um, but if they're not, maybe they're a little bit more reddish in color from their anger, or maybe there's a lot of um, distress going on for them through their gut system. Those might be signs of stress we're going to see there. Uh -huh. The next level of development in the whole um, synactive theory of organizational development is going to be um, the motor system. What are we looking at motor-wise? Is that infant able to become into a flex position? How we think of that little infant in a fetal position, uh -huh. sign of, of self-regulatory. Are they grasping a finger? Are, they, um, um, are we seeing what we want to be able to see of those um, smooth movements of the arms or the legs? Or are we seeing stress behaviors? Is that infant giving the all-famous um, halt hand, as we call it? They literally are holding out their hand to say, stop. Mm -hmm. um, or is that are their legs up in the air? Um, all signs of stress that there might be. The next layer that we're starting to look at then would be the state. What is their state? Are they sleeping? Are they quietly awake? Are they awake and agitated? And every one of those is a different state. And then within those, are they organized or are they disorganized? The baby mm. who's crying and screaming is disorganized, therefore stressed. The baby who's in a nice deep sleep has regular respirations, a calm heart rate, the oxygen level, and they are not dis, um, you know, not disturbed at that time when we see that deep sleep state that's uh -huh. organized. And then finally, the fourth that synects together is that attention and behavior related. Is the child showing self-regulatory or calming signs might be that baby who's kind of raising their eyebrows up like, hmm, I'm curious about this sound, or they're maybe giving an ooh kind of look of their, uh -huh. their mouth. Or is the infant instead, are they, um, are they having hiccups? Are they, um, those are, that might be a sign of stress there. Are they averting their eyes, not looking at you or closing you? That's probably one of my favorites. The nurses will say, oh, he's in there sleeping. And I go in and I watch that infant. And, well, his eyes are closed. Yes, they are. Um, but I'm seeing so many other signs of stress and knowing that that child's not sleeping because of, say, their high heart rate or the way that they're, they're moving about and startling and twitching and, mm. and, these, and these strong movements. And you wonder how much the child's eyes are closed because they're trying to close out the stimulation oh, sure. going on in their environment as opposed to that they are really sleeping. In mm -hmm. fact. So we have to be careful with eyes closed. That's often a stress behavior and not necessarily uh -huh. a I'm sleeping, I'm, therefore I'm calm behavior. Mm-hmm. So we look at those. So those are examples of behaviors to look for. But beyond the examples is to know that why and how they work together, how they synact, and therefore the theory of how the brain development develops because that they work together. Mm -hmm. It sounds like um, observation is a really big part of of this job. Like you really mm -hmm. have to know what to look for. And mm -hmm. I would imagine. And in fact, when I was doing some training with you in this field, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. the first thing we would go in and do is. Just watch for a few minutes and try to determine where is this infant at and um, what does this infant need right now. Absolutely. And we have to make observation a huge part of our interventions. The observation before we apply the interventions, observing throughout the interventions, and even the time afterwards, too. How long does that child able to maintain self-regulation because 
what the music therapist was just able to provide. Very important to spend time observing their behaviors. Mm -hmm. Okay, considering that these infants are in such a fragile state and they require so much um, observation, uh, how do you deliver live music, then, in a way that doesn't increase stress, especially with such limits on decibel levels? Mm, sure, sure. Well, you touched it right there when you said live music. Isn't that the best? And we as music therapists really emphasize that because you really, um, in the NICU, many NICUs choose which interventions with music do I want to provide? Do I want to provide recorded music interventions? Do I want to provide live music interventions? I think we have a lot more control with our voice when it comes to the noise level. Um, no, I'm not here to perform the latest aria that the, and, and a very, um, with, with the crescendos that there may be as I'm running up the scales, but instead, what am I doing to create that calming environment? So, um, and then same with the recorded music that we must use. What are the volume levels that we want to be able to have that music at? So we need to follow those standards. If we know what the standards are for our NICU, um, then we know what the noise levels should be. And then we can mm -hmm. translate that to where the music levels of noise shall be. So if you have, say, um, recorded music in your NICU, knowing what the noise standards are for your NICU. Like I said, the newest standards are 45 decibels and, and below for the newest or new and newly remodeled NICUs. Um, NICUs like ours that were built before these standards are following these standards set uh, like several years ago where the maximum was 60 decibels on an A-weighted scale. That's still quieter than conversational speech. Um, so we um, have all our recorded music at a, a maximum level it would not go beyond that 60 decibels on the weighted scale same with the recorded or with the live voice what am I doing to be directing my music and my voice to the infant's ear not just be present in the room or even have music present in the room but what am I doing to direct that music at the infant's ear is very very mm -hmm. necessary and then we start to look at what the qualities are well live music of course is best because it allows for changes in your volume in the rhythm of what you're singing, um, the tempo, even the pitch inflection. Uh, upward inflections are going to be more exciting for an infant. Those downward inflections are calming and soothing. Which one does this infant need? Um, again, we base it on their cues. What's the duration of time I'm going to sing for this child? It's going to a lot be on their cues, but also what their gestational age is. A use of a live voice conveys emotion and language. Um, and it can be combined together with your tactile, your hands providing support, visual and even vestibular stimulation, like our whole process of multimodal stimulation. And that's if you choose live. Mm -hmm. Very, very important. Um, well, music overall, what kind of music is going to be best, you might ask? As long as it's below 45 decibels, you could have ACDC going on. As long as it's <laughs> Believe me, I've had some parents try. That was tried a couple of times. That's a really good point. It's important then to educate ourselves and our families and our staff as to what are the qualities in music that we're looking mm -hmm. at. Not just the noise level, but what are the qualities. We want music that's calming, that's sedative. There are no sudden crescendos or diminuendos. We want smooth transitions. We want limited inflection of the music. We want limited timbre, limited harmony, and therefore a limited number of instrumentation in the music too. Or as I tell parents, you want to find music that has no sudden louds and softs or starts and stops. Mm -hmm. And the music that best classifies in that is lullaby music. As I explain that to parents, they start to get the light bulb comes on and they start to think, yeah, okay, I get it. And I will, can demonstrate that by singing for them. 
or providing them some recorded music that I would recommend that fits that criteria that I tell them. And I say, listen for this music. And they'll say, well, you know, my baby listened to ACDC while, while he was in the womb, and I think that's the best music to play. And I'll say, remind them again the needs of a, of a premature infant. We talk mm -hmm. about the behaviors that they observe in their child. And then we start to talk about, again, those qualities of music. And I usually, again, give them the example. What music, as you listen to this, are there sudden louds and softs and starts and stops? And they'll say, oh, I get it with this music. And then they listen to their other song, whether it be their Mozart or their ACDC or their the Baby Einsteins that are very popular now, so that they can make the informed decision to say, you're right, this does not have a steady tempo. This has sudden crescendos in the music. This music suddenly stops. Um, and so then the parent can say, yeah, that is not going to meet the qualities or the needs of my premature infant. Mm -hmm. That seems to be the best ways to empower them through educating them. Okay. So I was thinking uh, maybe we could uh, teach a song or two just quickly. Before we do that, could you maybe just um, mention a few resources that music therapists or anyone else who's interested might go to just to learn more about uh, music therapy with premature infants and what's appropriate uh, intervention-wise for them. Sure, sure. A lot of the, um, I think it's both important that we look at both the work of music therapists, but we also look at the works of those who are the developmental care experts um, to help us be that expert in neurobehavioral development. So I'll start there first. Um, the, the works of Dr. Heidelie Sahls and um, her assessment of preterm infant behavior and a lot of her information is fabulous. In fact, there's a music therapy book that the first chapter in the book is about neurobehavioral development and that would be the the music therapy book is called Music Therapy for Premature and Newborn Infants. Uh, the editor of that book was uh, Naka Ripa-Pierre um, and again it's great for music therapists because we may look at it from the music therapist perspective but there's a great chapter in there about developmental care mm -hmm. and neurobehavioral development by Dr. Heidelie Sahls. Other um, professionals whose work I highly regard in the work of in developmental care include that of Gretchen Lahone and um, Laura Robeson, even Stanley Graven's work because we, he, his is a lot about visual development and how the auditory development or auditory stimulation affects um, visual development. So a lot of those works, there are, there are so many wonderful specialists in that area. As a music therapist, of course, looking at a lot of the research that, that's been done by our colleagues, Joanne Lowy, Jane Stanley, um, even our, our colleagues, uh, Deanna Hanson Abermite, mm -hmm. and she has written some um, guidelines for the use of live or recorded music in the NICU that have been very helpful for NICUs who wanted to determine and have some limits to be able to provide what's appropriate uh, time and duration and volume levels, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, also, the work of Helen Schumark out of Australia has done some wonderful work, and again, uh, Rie Palpierre, I love a lot of her work that she talks about the, the importance of the mother's voice. Okay. So um, those, I'm sure there are so many others too, but those are some of my favorite reference material. Great. Okay, so Kim, when you are up on the unit working uh, with, with premature infants, what are some of your go-to songs? And then um, what seems to work best? I think um, what works best, of course, is going to be on based on the infant's behavior. When I'm going to start my interventions with mo most infants with just a low level of stimulation, starting to hum to that infant. Um, and I'm going to keep my, um, my intervals very small as I'm working with that infant. And if that infant is responding positively, I'm going to transition perhaps into um, the lyrics with a song. So it might be, and also adding in tactile support or touch. So we might move from low stimulation to then moving into multi-sensory stimulation and doing that with live singing. 
again, uh-huh. my, because I can vary my voice depending on that infant's behaviors. And we might move on from there into um, if we're actually getting to hold the infant. So working on like multimodal stimulation, the whole progressive movement, uh, providing tactile, auditory, visual, and vestibular stimulation for an infant. Um, all the way to more developmental interventions for the infant who's older that we could provide to. Mm-hmm. So um, when I'm working with an infant who's very young, and um, I may work with infants as young as 29 weeks, gestational age, and at least one week old, I'm going to start really quietly again with that low stimulation, just the... Now, I demonstrated that more for the pitches, the, the, the very small inflection. It was a little fast and a little low. Babies prefer higher pitches. That's why they like female voices, although the, I plenty of parents that tell me how much they love dad's voice. So everyone's <laughs> voice is important. Um, but also, what are we doing to keep it calming and soothing? So I'm going to change my pitch a little higher for that infant. I might move my way into actually singing. Oh baby, oh baby, beautiful baby girl. I have some of my own lullabies. That's just the start of a lullaby that I sing. Um, and as well as standard lullabies that a parent can feel very calm. They, they, they could smile and nod when I say Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star or ABCs or um, uh, some songs like that. They're very, very comfortable with. They want to move up to the next level. It's the All Through the Night or All the Pretty Little Ponies. Mm. And, and, they, and some parents will go along with that and, and say, oh, I can do this. And then I have parents who say, you know, I, I want to take my own music and turn it into a lullaby. So we, we might do that as well. Okay. Well, Kim, thank you so much for your time today and sharing all of your great knowledge. I guess uh, we can wrap that up unless you have any final... I think the be- you know maybe one final comment would be that we have to work together with those in the NICU. They are the experts of knowing what the child's medical needs are and what the child's uh, neurobehavioral needs are, and we come in- we are coming into that environment. So the music therapist is important to form the- form those mentorships with those that we can learn from. Learning from the uh, I've had many nurses as my mentors and um, neonatologists as my mentors, music therapists who help me understand the practice of music therapy. So I think more than anything, we want to establish those mentorships with mm-hmm. our own related, our own profession, but those related professionals who can help us continue to work together and, and grow beautiful programs in the NICU. Thanks for listening to this Imagine podcast produced in 2011.